In this episode of the Guidewire Podcast, I get a chance to interview somebody I've wanted to have on this show for a really long time, John Spear. He's the founder of Greenlight Guru, and he's the host of the Global Medical Device Podcast. We get to chat about the origins of his company, electronic quality management software, and his experiences in entrepreneurship in the startup world. Welcome to Guidewire, a direct line to medical device innovation. We are the boots on the ground inside of healthcare working to uncover and solve high-impact, unmet medical needs. Welcome to the Guidewire Podcast. I'm your host, Devin Hubbard, and today I'm honored to be joined by John Spear. He's a founder of Greenlight Guru, and he's also the host of the Global Medical Device Podcast, which is actually one of my favorites. I listen to it all the time. Thanks, John, for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. I have a litany of questions for you. Before we get there, I was hoping that we could get a little bit of background on you, just sort of like how you got where you are. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, that's that's, <laughs> that's a tougher question than it seems like it should that's be. The worst. Um, if if you ever go into an interview and they're just like, "Tell me about yourself," right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Where do you Where do you want me to start? All right. So I have some highlights. Um, we'll start with. I'll probably dance all over the place, but current day, I am. Uh, First and foremost, father of a 21-year-old and an 18-year-old, which you know is surreal that I have two adult children. I am uh, recently married, which you know I love that I have married my best friend, so that's a good time. And you know, part of that, you know, we're blending families and all that sort of thing. So you know, there's some some some. Most days are pretty good, but some days come with uh, um, lots of uh, personalities and emotions and that sort of thing. But more on the professional front, you know, I'm, I actually have a chemical engineering background uh, or degree anyway. Never worked as a chemical engineer. I've always worked in the medical device industry, which has been over 23 years. I've done a lot of really cool things, design and develop products, uh, you know, from cocktail napkin sketches from doctors and turn them into devices and launch them, which is one of the most for me, like the most fascinating things I've ever had the opportunity to do. So I completely appreciate that. But then also gotten into, um, you know, more of the system side of things, how to run a business, setting up quality systems, you know, strategy, business strategy, regulatory strategy, you know, a lot of other aspects of, of what it takes to run a med device company. And I guess the most um, recent item on my resume is, you know, as you mentioned, founder of Greenlight Guru. So it's a, a company that I started back in uh, late 2013, and the big idea was med device professionals were struggling to do their job, so to speak, and meet the regulations. And so I had some ideas on on ways to improve upon that, and eventually we developed uh, the Greenlight Guru software platform to address those needs. So anyway, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, that's perfect. Now, that actually leads into the first kind of question I wanted to ask you about. So as founder of, of Greenlight... Uh, tell me a little bit about what, like, what is Greenlight Guru? And you, you alluded to why you started it. You know, I met you because I teach quality and regulatory as part of my job at the university. And um, we were trying to find a better way to teach it and a better way to implement it in the classroom. But I've learned a ton about what you guys are up to, which is incredible. But, I, I you know, tell me a little bit about the background. Like, how did you get to the realization that Greenlight Guru's sort of structure was the right way to go? So Greenlight Guru is a medical, what we call a medical device success platform. And essentially what the platform is about is providing workflows that help medical device professionals navigate 
a variety of different jobs that need to be done within medical device companies. Some of the the highlights, if you will, were or help you manage the design and development process. You know, from defining your requirements to conducting your verification and validation and design reviews, as well as documenting and managing the risks associated with the use of the product. There are other workflows within the platform to help you better manage documents and, and, and records, as well as electronic signature process to review and approve those things. And then, you know, once you ha- have products in the marketplace, there's this need to manage and manage not just those products, but your business. But you also have to keep track of what are kind of generically called quality events. So, you know, for example, somebody may use your product, there may be an issue with it, and they they may have a complaint about it, which is completely natural in the med device space, but you have to document and investigate those types of things. Uh, so those are some of the examples of the workflows that are in the platform. Why do we come up with this? Well, as I mentioned on the intro, I've, I've been in the medical device industry since 1998. And um, even in 2021, the most common way that companies solve a lot of these quality system needs in, in, in different workflows that I mentioned is a largely paper-based or paper derivative-based uh, approach. And there's not, prior to Greenlight, there was no software solution designed specifically for the medical device industry. The first, our beachhead, so to speak, was about solving the design control challenge, which, you know, for those that are sort of in the trenches, design and development or design controls, it's the culmination of all the the evidence to demonstrate that your product is safe and effective and that it actually works. All these things are contained within a design history file, but no one had really solved that problem for a medical device professional prior to Greenlight. So that was really the why. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I know I know that you've touched on this in your podcast that you know there's a number of reasons that electronic kind of software that electronic systems are superior in terms of you know maintaining change control and all that fun stuff i'll let listeners listen to your podcast on that one but it sounds to me like there was a real need um certainly from listening to your podcast and from what you've mentioned and so one of the questions that i think often plagues us and so i'm coming now from the perspective of somebody in academic center who does medical device design we're in this funny zone where we're sort of on the research side. We don't necessarily, we may have like proof of concept kind of work. The question that I get all the time, and I still don't feel like I have a great answer to is, you know, when do you turn on, when do you need a quality system? And like, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because I imagine you probably feel this kind of question all the time or similar versions of it. Cause you have companies coming to you. that are like, I think we need this. What are your thoughts on this? And like, if you could tell Maybe somebody who's new to this, right, who's navigating a medical device for the first time, what are your thoughts on that? It is a one of those complicated questions to answer. I'll do my best to, to hit some, some key points because th- there is some ambiguity about it, to be quite honest. And, and part of that ambiguity is, is going to depend on where in the world that you plan to launch your medical device in some respects. But to me, you know, if you're a startup and, and you're designing and developing a medical device. Do you need it from from day one? My answer is probably not with a caveat that it depends. <laughs> and the the it depends uh, portion of that is where are you in the maturation of of your device design? If you're still trying to to demonstrate like any a proof of concept, you, you don't even know if there's a real market 
you're still, tr- you're still trying to figure out if this is even a viable thought or idea. That might be a little premature, but I think by the time you start to define your specific product requirements, and when you start to get into heavy prototyping and heavy prototyping, I use air quotes around that, is more than just like, sometimes people will do a proof of concept where they'll just grab different parts and pieces to try to hack something together, just you know, to prove a concept. If you start to get into something that, that you can almost envision as what the finished product is, if you haven't started at least the, the basic foundation of your quality system by then, it's not that it's too late, but you're behind. So you, know, you really should start that pretty early. And I guess the last little bit I would share about this is my approach to a quality system is really about scaling it and evolving it as you go. So when you're that early stage startup, you don't need to worry about everything that goes under your system. There's about four parts that are important. Design control, risk management. You're going to be creating documents and records through the design and development process. So you need a uh, process to, to describe how you do that. And then by the nature of, of being a startup or a smaller company, a lot of times many services are being outsourced to a lot of different suppliers and vendors. So you need a process that, that describes how you manage uh, your suppliers. So four processes in the beginning. And then as you evolve, you can add other parts and pieces to that. I like that way of thinking about it. You know, as uh, I was talking to a regulatory affairs consultant just a week ago about this and feeling really overwhelmed by the sheer volume of paperwork that was being dumped on us for something. And your way of thinking about it actually makes a ton of sense because it fits for a small company early on, right? Those are the things that you need to worry about. And then later on, I suppose you'd have to worry about things like post-market surveillance and all that. Yeah. So, yeah, but you can add it, right? With your experience with the regulatory consultant is is, um, unfortunately a uh, conventional wisdom in this industry. And I think that's part of the challenge. But uh, if I'm a startup, at some point in time, I hope I'm going to be worrying about post-market, but I'm a long, long way from, from doing so. And there's time in that process. I mean, if I'm focusing on what I, where I am and what I need to do today, I should have processes that describe that. Because it really, I think a quality system, a lot of people um, misunderstand its intent. A quality system is really about describing how we do business. And there is a compliance, a regulatory compliance component to it by being in the device industry. But as I get you know closer and closer to a regulatory submission and further downstream and closer to market, then I should be taking on other parts of that quality system and starting to put those things in place. But yeah, it's it's somebody told me once the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. And I think you should treat <laughs> your quality system as an elephant. Yeah, it makes total sense. And especially because quality systems and quality management systems are really big. And for a startup, especially, it's just overwhelming or it can be overwhelming. And that makes complete sense. Okay, I want to ask you about some trends in your world. But first, I want to I want to ask your advice. So like along the same lines that we were just talking about, if I'm a new innovator in the medical devices world, and I encounter folks like this pretty frequently on who are, you know, they're maybe physicians or nurses or advanced practice providers sort of. What resources would you suggest somebody who's kind of new to this realm? Like where would you point them to learn out, uh, learn about quality systems and regulatory affairs? Well, first I'll give you uh, uh, the strong biased answer and and at the same time, the bias aside, it's it's a great resource. But the Greenlight Guru blog is a fantastic resource. And 
our company takes as much pride in the content and the educational information that we provide to the industry for free as we do in selling a, a software platform to help medical device companies. You know, for example, you know, we have a, a content piece called the ultimate guide to design controls and that and most every other content piece that we publish it takes complicated topics like medical device regulations and distills them into everyday common language and, and concepts so you know i would guide people there as a resource and there's like i said there's tons of of content you know things you can read webinars you can watch podcasts you can listen to all of those sorts of things. And then we also have a YouTube channel with some other videos. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, nice. I need to check that out. There's a few videos that we did um, pre-COVID. Uh, we were just actually starting to ramp up recording of, of different tutorials. But yeah, there's some decent stuff there. <laughs> That's but, awesome. But there's some other great resources. I mean, like I think, I mean, it kind of depends on what you want to do. But, you know, the FDA, uh, believe it or not, has a really good guidance document on design controls. It was published back in 1996 or seven. I can't remember the exact year. So it's got a little bit of age to it, but I, I still think it's it's pretty timeless. It's still applicable. You stole the words out of my mouth because I was going to point listeners to the Greenlight Guru blog because I use it all the time in my classroom. And to your point, I think it actually, you guys do such a good job of breaking down really complicated and complex maybe is a better way of describing dynamics and int- information in a way that is digestible which is great for my students who are undergrads, but I think is true for anybody who's unfamiliar with the regulatory realm. If you were to pick which one to, you know, indoctrinate people with, which one would you point them to? Well, I mean, it's, it was one of the earlier content pieces, but I think it's, and keep in mind folks that I am the person who wrote this. So um, <laughs> they're good. I, they're, how much this, yeah. when do you, when do you sleep? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how well, you get all this stuff done. Well, our process has evolved a great deal today from what it was in, in early days, but early days, I mean, I, I would sit there and just, you know, hammer away at a keyboard, but, but the ultimate guide to design controls is really, really good. I think if I could have a manifesto um, that would be, important component of that manifesto. I think the other thing that's really good is it's called the definitive guide to risk management. And I, and I talk about these two things because to me, you know, like when I started in, in the industry back in the, the late nineties, risk management didn't really have, I mean, it was getting started, but as a separate discipline, it wasn't really a thing. It was sort of ingrained. This is what you do as a product development engineer who's designing medical devices. You have to consider the risk of them, right? It's just, in fact, if you think about the design control process in and of itself, it is a risk management approach because, you know, of all the checks and balances and, you know, all the things that you're doing through that process. But to me today, anyway, I think design controls and risk management they're just two different sides of the same coin. They're looking at things from a slightly different perspective. But those are the two things I would point people to. We've talked about that before, actually, on your podcast. Was the One of the things that I've observed with my students is they're, they seem to get a better understanding of that link. Because I think it's easy to separate document and design control, or I should just say design controls, from risk management. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've had student teams that go through design control stuff, and then we get to the risk assessment component, and they're using green light, and they get in there, and they start doing the risk assessment and realize, oh, I, I see why we did all this stuff 
And I understand now how risk informs the design side of things. And anyway, we've already talked about that. But I would also add, I mean, so if I were picking one of them, I would also point people to the ultimate guide to the to 1345. I think that one's really helpful for those that are interested in in, in general. Anyway, it's funny because I use all three of those for my classroom. So, And that third one, I think, does a pretty good job sort of laying out the roadmap that, uh, of how your quality can evolve, kind of back to the, one of the earlier questions you asked. No, I, I really like them because I, as a person who did not, I didn't get any training in this until I started kind of doing it. I can appreciate the naive individual coming into this and going like, okay, how does the FDA work? <laughs> but, but, but I mean, your experience is, is all too common. I mean, most medical device professionals kind of get thrown into things with that, with little to no guidance or training. And I understand that the awesome responsibility and the, the huge tasks that the FDA has and the responsibility that they have, but most of their guidances, no disrespect to them are not good. They're, they're hard to understand. And so, you know, and regulations are ambiguous. So just pointing somebody there, eh, not a gr- real great place to start. Yeah, it can be very challenging, not only to interpret and understand, but I think if you're not thinking about it from the perspective of the regulator, it can be hard to understand like what even the language is trying to get at. And um, that's something that it took me a long time. I still am nowhere near being an expert on this by any stretch of the imagination, but I think I've come to appreciate that kind of language. And now I think I appreciate even more the resources that you guys have already developed because it does really make it kind of connects the dots. And even if you're kind of more indoctrinated in it, I think even going back to these now, I read them. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that makes a lot more sense, you know? Anyway. So all that being said, I think you guys have a great resource. So yeah, th- thanks for building that out. Yeah, for sure. Can I switch gears here? I want to talk to you guys, to you about your entrepreneurial experiences and what it was like to start a company and how you got, I mean, you just told me the other day that you've grown to a pretty large size, like more than a hundred employees. And I say that's, that's very impressive. So for me, I have questions from the entrepreneurial end of things again, because I'm frequently encountering, you know, clinicians and, and inventors who are like, I want to start a company or I want to license this technology. We already got the why you started Greenlight. What was the process like and what advice would you give to a newly formed, I'll just say startup, not even medical technology startup, because I think it could be different. Before Greenlight became a company, the idea for the Greenlight product was inside my head for many years. Um, actually, the, the Greenlight CEO, David Duram, I met him probably a good three plus years before we started Greenlight. And I actually pitched him. Actually, I has a shortish story. Um, so I, I had a consulting practice at the time. And you know, it was a little boutique consulting firm. And I was doing a lot of work with startup companies. And, and that was sort of the aha, like, oh, wow, these companies don't know uh, anything about this topic. And there's no, there's writing a procedure doesn't really make it clearer, a little bit clearer. But and especially in this day and age, you know, a lot of startups were they're virtual. People are spread out everywhere. And I got tired of it as a consultant emailing, you know, spreadsheets back and forth to multiple people. And I was spending a ridiculous amount of my time just updating a spreadsheet. And I'm like, damn it, I have an engineering degree. I spent a lot of money. My parents spent a lot of money on that engineering degree. Surely <laughs> I can do more than just update spreadsheets, right? So there was this point where the, it was building. But I was working with a marketing firm with my consulting practice who was helping with like email marketing and branding and all that sort of thing. And I shared with her this idea that I had. And she's like, you should talk to my husband. 
who you know ends up being David Durham, CEO of Greenlight. And I think the first time he met with me, he did it out of a courtesy for his wife. You know, she was pestering, but he he didn't really care, uh, to be quite honest. And not the first time. And you know, to shorten the story a little bit, we had a couple of start and stops along the way. Uh, there was one time we were going to partner with another medical device company, you know, because David has a software development background. And I brought the the regulatory uh, side of things. So we were going to partner and, you know, the med device company announced that they were shutting down their, their operations in, in Indianapolis. So I was like, all right. So it went back on the back burner. And then a couple of years later, David reached out and it's like, are you ready to do this? I'm like, what are you talking about? And then things have changed in the world and, and, and that sort of thing. And that's when we started it. I think that's the first thing is, you know, if you have a good idea, sometimes you got to be patient. Sometimes you got to wait for the conditions to be right. And that's a hard thing to do. Sage wisdom. <laughs> okay, two, I have two questions. So first of all, how did you kind of know, like, hey, let's, let's do this? You know, what was the sort of, what was the triggering event? Was it just David called up and was like, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's do this thing. I've got some time or is there anything in particular? Or I had enough colleagues and contacts and people in my network who were able to corroborate that I was not alone in feeling this pain. So you kind of had some built-in market research, right? Yeah, I didn't publish it in any sort of fancy report, but I, I had enough data. Now, the, the caveat, though, was the people who are feeling the pain and the people who have the, the, the purse strings to buy a solution are somewhat disconnected and, and disparate with an organization. So that was sort of like the one of the the drawbacks is we knew there was pain, but, but we also knew, you know, it would be had the potential to be a difficult sell, sell within a company because, you know, there's this, this C-suite disconnect sometimes. I think that the early days when, when David, what was convincing for David before we started Greenlight is we both attended this, this sort of this local uh, entrepreneurial startup, like, trade show or exhibit or something in, in Indianapolis. And it's, it's all industries. Um, but I had a really, really rough, crude proof of concept. I, I think I had a laptop with like, it probably looked like a little flowchart from Vizio. I mean, there was nothing to it really, but people were lined up to, to hear about it. And David saw that. He's like, huh, there must be something there. And so when we started, decided to, to move forward with it, I mean, in the early days, we didn't know then where it was going to go, but we started to just like hustle and call, you know, call all sorts of people and build, you know, sort of, um, we did a, a more additional market research and we got to the point where we had a couple of devs and the early days, it was David, myself and two developers. That was it. And I, I would say within the first three or four months or so, the developer resources had created some high fidelity screenshots, you know, basically we were, we were building a storyboard uh, with some high fidelity screenshots and we were able to sell that to a handful of companies. Um, we refer to them as early adopters. They paid us money, a modest amount, but they paid us money to be a part of that experience and help us develop that product. And, you know, David was, was very successful you know, raising some friends and family uh, funding to, to keep us going for a period of time. But I, I think the big thing was about getting the idea into a product that we could charge you money for as quickly as possible. That makes total sense. And I mean, I think your 
to me, it seems like the software around, I, I have no experience there, is very challenging to me. Like you've got a disruptive idea, very disruptive, because it's not, you're, you're fundamentally changing a very fundamental component of medical device product development. And what hurdles did you guys have? Like, what are the biggest hurdles or milestones that you guys encountered uh, along your way to where you are now? One of the first challenges we faced, we were an unknown entity. And at that time, we probably were being a little too provocative and a a little too cute. But you can see, I don't know if uh, there would be a video with this when you publish this, but the green G today is... I would say it's almost like a seafoam green. I, I don't know the official Pantone <laughs> or RGB color, but but it's you know it's a nice pastel-y green. But in the early days, it was a bam in your face, bright bright green, like neon green. And we called the company Greenlight Dot Guru. We always emphasize the dot. We're like, let's go back. Let's let's do a little bit something different. Let's try to shake it out. Let's go back to the the dot-com era. I mean, <laughs> you know, everything was 1-800.com, you know, as part of the business. So we, we, we were trying to bring that back. And, and, I, and I think that the being new, a new player to the, to the industry, even though we were a disruptor, it took a, l- a long time for us to get traction. I'm not surprised, but I mean, I think you're playing in a realm where everything, you know, there's a lot of not political conservatism, but just like risk aversion, right? So like changes like this could be seen as, oh, I got like you, we got to do everything over. It's funny you say that about your branding, because that's the, one of the first things I noticed, right? Well, I was like, oh, that's a bright green. And I'm really curious. You kind of answered a question I wanted to ask you, which was like, where did greenlight.guru come from? Because the first <laughs> thing I noticed was your your web address, it's greenlight.guru. And my students are like, .com? No, <laughs> it's just .guru, which is really cool. I think that was a clever move because you can't forget it, right? Right. And that was the thought about the company being greenlight.guru is that the company name and web address were the same. That was one of the, the thoughts. But I remember the day and, and early days of the company, we, we sublet some space um, or subleased, uh, um, forgive my grammar there, but a subleased uh, space in another tech company. Like we had a, a desk in the corner and maybe a couple of tables. And this building was, was cool and it had a lot of character, but it was like a dungeon. It was an old auto factory from back in the 1930s or something like that. But so we're sitting there and the CTO, I think it was him, he, he said, hey, did you guys read about the, they're opening up the domain extensions? And I'm like a complete newbie on this. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you know, the dot .com, the dot, the .org, et cetera, et cetera. I go, yeah. He goes, well, they're now opening up so there can be other domain extensions. And we could sort of peruse the list. And one of the ones that stuck out was the dot .guru. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And because we we are an intentional specific platform. And we wanted to focus on education and information to help guide the industry towards best practices. So the guru made a lot of sense. And then the green light part of it, that was important because throughout my career, it's like, we're trying to get a green light from FDA. We're trying to get a green light so we can go to market. We're trying to get a green light. So it's it's the quintessential descriptor of, of moving forward in this space. I think it makes sense. I want to point out to the listeners too that 
you gave a whole bunch of really intensely wise advice just by describing <laughs> your pathway to where you are now because you talked about very intentional decisions about branding and separation as an unknown entity, which is very important, and putting thought into that, even though sometimes it might be spontaneous as it sounds like it was a little bit when you were browsing extensions. I mean, all of it very wise, right? Those, are, I think, were good moves to set you guys up to differentiate yourselves because, you know, who else is going to come along and compete with that and be successful? They can't. <laughs> you were the first one there. Before we leave that, I had a really short, funny story. Part of that was it happened spontaneous, but the green light was something that we like we brainstormed about names for a long time. But when we made the decision, it was like it was like quick. We were like, yes, that's it. Let's go. And I think there was a little bit of paranoia that around it, too, that, oh, my gosh, somebody else is going to get the domain greenlight.guru. We better hurry and do that. And so I'm in a yeah. rush. I think I'm on like <laughs> one of these domain registry sites. And I'm like, all right, I registered it. And I was like a week later, CTO was like, hey, did you say you registered the domain? I'm like, yeah, I goes, are you sure? I go, I just typed it in. It's not been registered yet. And I went through the records. So we secured it. But I went through, I had registered green lie, L-I-G-H, no guru. <laughs> uh, so oh my yeah. God, I've actually done the exact same thing. I, what did I register? I can't remember what it was. I did the same thing where I'd left a letter out. I was like, perfect, we got it. And then someone else that I was working with was like, that's funny, it still shows as open. And I went back and looked and it was like, I don't know if I had like typed in, like, there was just either I had transposed one of the, the letters or left one off. Oh, that's such an easy mistake to make. And if you're in a rush like that, <laughs> oh man, that's pretty funny. <laughs> So there you go. Check your double check your domain names when you're yes, registering. Yes, absolutely. Them. I mean, the good news is that it costs like three ninety nine a year, but nonetheless, <laughs> double check. <laughs> All right, let's shift gears again. So, how did you grow Greenline into what it is now? Like, what drove that vision? I mean, I think you kind of touched on some advertising and sort of branding elements to it, but what do you think has gotten you to be successful? I mean, you have how many employees do you guys have now? We have right around 130. And, you know, I think we, as we're talking, we have another 10 positions or something like that that we're trying to fill. So it's huge. Growing. Yeah. The growth is, I mean, cash sales is, is cash is the fuel to, to run a business. I mean, I, I'm sorry to say so for those that are maybe an, a, a little more altruistic out there. But nonetheless, I mean, if you're trying to grow a business, you need fuel to keep that business running in some way, shape, or form. You know, even if it's from philanthropic purposes, there still needs to be that capital to come in. And we are a SaaS company, software as a service. And there's some really interesting business models around SaaS, the notion of recurring revenue and that sort of thing. So just to, to real simple high level, but you know, we sign a customer up. We want to continue for them to be a customer, you know, for all intents and purposes for in perpetuity. So their revenue, the amount that they pay us every year. And if we every sale we get on top of that adds to that. So it's a really great business model as far as growth is concerned. But before we could even sell anything, we had to get, you know, the lead generation. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard work. Oh, it's super hard work. And in, and in a typical SaaS company, and I would say a typical startup. The lead generation is is typically with outbound, meaning there's a lot of cold calling and and unsolicited emailing and that sort of thing that I'm trying to I'm trying to connect with. Maybe I'm purchasing different lists of users for this, that, and the other. 
But the green light model is completely inversed from that. Our approach has been through the content and the, the educational information and putting out ultimate guide to this and, and the guide to that and a webinar on this is about inbound, about making our content so compelling and, and resonating with the reader that they're pulling on us. And so in a typical startup SaaS company, it's usually 80%, 80 plus percent outbound is the lead gen. We were 80 plus percent inbound. And we could we figured out some things. I mean, our VP of Mark, he is a genius. I don't know how he knows all this, but just the the way he knew how knows how to navigate the tools, the systems that are out there. There's some pretty creative things, but but that inbound lead gen was the what fueled the whole thing. That's really cool. I've never I, I can't first of all, I'm not an expert at SaaS, but that's an interesting approach. It's kind of flipping it out of its head. Uh, I wonder if there's yeah, that's really cool. I'm going to have to look into that a little bit more and learn more about it before I can ask intelligent questions. Well, I mean, we, you know, the, some good resources on that, like the, not that we've followed the playbook exactly, but HubSpot is a, uh, a really interesting SaaS company. And, you know, they, they do share a lot of their playbook out there, but, but it is a really interesting business model. So there's a lot of, at least the, the core concepts and, and foundational things that HubSpot had proven in the CRM market space that we bet we borrowed, you know, from time to time to grow our business. Oh, that's cool. I think the last question that I have for you today is I want to hear about trends. So I think you know, obviously this year we've had to deal with a pandemic and this may or may not be part of this context. But the question I have for you is like, what do you see as the trends in EQMS? You know, what's coming down the pipeline? What are you seeing in, in the marketplace from your perspective as a uh, software you know, sort of company, what are your predictions? What are your thoughts? What are you seeing as trends in QMS? And I guess before I get to that specific and and to kind of transition or segue from our growth, you know, into that topic, back in uh, March of 2020, I mean, obviously, we all got a curveball, a giant curveball, you know, (laughs) we were all sitting fastball. And so we all had to pivot. And, you know, from a green light perspective, up until that point, our growth and hiring philosophy was about attracting talent to Indianapolis and operating out of our brick and mortar facility in Indianapolis. And then the pandemic happens and we're all remote at that point. And there was a moment in time, it was probably around, let's go with April or May-ish timeframe of 2020, where the executive team's like, all right, we have lots of needs here. Do we sit on the sidelines and wait for this to pass? Or do we double down and just grow through it, just get through it? And we chose to double down and get through it. Like, we're not stopping. The world needs us now more than ever. And, you know, in hindsight, uh, that was a truer statement than we would have ever appreciated at that point in time. The other part of that decision was, all right, we, we have some very key positions where we need some, some people with certain skill sets and expertise. And nobody is traveling, first and foremost, uh, let alone relocating their family at that point in time. So we decided to do an experiment. Hey, what if we hire people and they didn't have to relocate? What if they can stay wherever they are? And we did that and, and it fueled our growth. I mean, during COVID until now, so right at COVID, I think our, our employee headcount was right around 50 You've more than doubled. 
We've more than doubled since COVID. <laughs> That's awesome. It's in part because of some strategies that, you know, the, the, some of those strategies that I just mentioned, like we, we knew that, that this, you know, med device companies are still going to be needed. In fact, more medical device companies became necessary because of COVID. I mean, all the FDA, the companies that applied for FDA emergency use authorization with ventilators and, you know, face masks and all these sorts of things, a lot of companies became medical device companies to help solve or address the needs. And their workforces are all remote, but they still need to get work done. Well, our platform actually enables remote work. So the demand for our products and services were increasing as well. So, you know, that's really the big trend. And I think, you know, now that that we're coming sort of out of it, at least this time around, a lot of those practices, companies realize a lot of the practices that and systems and tools that they had in place were archaic and didn't scale and grow or keep up with, with the fluid uh, and dynamic nature of business. And so that's, that's been another pull or a reason that Greenlight is an attractive solution is because of those scenarios. I'm not surprised by that. And I think I've, I've heard from other folks the same kind of trends. And I think that it's going to continue as people. I do think that the pandemic kind of forced a lot of companies to kind of look in and be like, wait, there's a lot of rust on this process. Maybe we should kind of brush that off and rethink it. And I'm not surprised by that comment. But um yeah, that's encouraging. I think that's great news for you guys, obviously. I have other questions, but I don't think we've got time to get to them today. But I will ask you on record if if you'd be willing to come back on the podcast for another episode, because I have a lot of questions around, you know, the impacts of COVID, emergency use authorizations, and kind of how that fueled things for you guys. But we can get into that another time. But John, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I have actually wanted to have you on as a guest since the very first day that we thought of the podcast, we we're like, oh, who, who can we have on? And I was like, I got to get at least a season under my belt so I know what I'm doing. Not that I do now, but uh, I, I want to say thank you for coming on today. We, I've really appreciated talking to you. And for those that are listening, go check out the Global Medical Device Podcast. Really worth listening to. I point my students to it. I point my colleagues to it. I think it's a fantastic resource and all the resources that you guys have at, at Greenlight Guru. So thanks again for joining me today, John. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And folks, if this is your first episode of the Guidewire podcast, go listen to the rest. It's really good stuff. I mean, I I, I was catching up on some episodes the other day. And I'm like, what is Devin going to get me into? But now you do a great job with this. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to be a guest. Well, thanks very much. And I would love to have you on again. So hopefully that'll happen sometime soon. We hope you've enjoyed today's discussion with John Spear from Greenlight Guru. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, please send a message to guidewire at unc.edu. Follow us on Twitter at GuidewirePod. For more content like this, consider subscribing to the Guidewire podcast on your favorite streaming service. As always, I'm your host, Devin Hubbard, and we will talk to you next time. Learn more about our exciting activities, opportunities, and team by subscribing to the Guidewire podcast on your favorite listening service. If you have identified an unmet medical need, or are interested in learning more about our process, visit us at guidewire.unc.edu. You have been listening to Guidewire, a direct line to medical device innovation.